Views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. What would you like to do this afternoon? Go to the movies. All right. No fooling, will you? No fooling. Bobby, tell me, do you have to have money to go there? I've got two dollars. Mom gave it to me. No, I want to take you to the movie. Do you think they'd accept these? Gee, they look like diamonds. Well, in some places, those are what people use for money. They're easy to carry and they don't wear out. I'll bet they're worth a million dollars. Would you give me your two dollars for two of these? Well, sure. Okay. Let's not say anything to Mom about this, though, huh? Why not, Bobby? Well, she doesn't like me to steal from people. It is Thursday, November 20th, 2008. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. And welcome to the show today, which is certainly possibly the snowiest Thursday I've been here at the university since we started this show, but it's very nice out there. Careful on the roads. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about money, morality, and capitalism. That's the theme for the show today. And in the midst of that theme, we'll be talking about some of the economic uh, myths that people believe, including the fear of abundance and the myth of public works. We're going to be talking about credit and depressions, cars and capitalism, and the quality of money. But uh, the theme is going to be a little different. By the way, 519-661-3600 is the number you can call if you want to join us in the conversation, or you can email us at justrightchrw at gmail.com. As many of you did, by the way, uh, when I requested some uh, jokes last week, uh, we did have a little humor last week at the end of the show, really appreciate some of them, had a good chuckle this morning when I read a few of them, and I guarantee you, all the clean ones will be read on the air at some time in the future, in the very near future. But today we have to get a little bit serious because there's a lot of misunderstanding going on out there in the midst of the General Motors and the big three bailout that we're hearing about so much. And, of course, yesterday I heard General Motors CEO Rick Wagoner say it's about saving the U.S. economy from a catastrophic collapse. And uh, he says it's about 5 million jobs lost. So that's what he thinks it's about, but I don't really think so. I mean, that's part of what it's about. That's part of the, the situation. And today I'm actually quite fortunate to be able to draw on the wisdom. I'm going to do something a little different today of many people, including, you'll hear from some of them personally, some of them through me reading their works, but we'll be hearing from Ayn Rand, Dr. Leonard Peikoff, Paul McKeever, Milton Friedman, Walter Williams, Isabel Patterson, Henry Hazlitt, and Frederick Bastiat. Because that's kind of the theme today. These are people who have known how these phenomenon of market credit crises and things work. And today I hope to demonstrate that the knowledge of how to justly and properly address our economic crisis has been around for like ages, for centuries. And, you know, so my, why, you may ask, is this knowledge not common? And I think that the inconvenient truth about our economy 
is that most people are unwilling to face up to the moral reality that the major function of today's government has been to violate the, one of the major commandments, thou shalt not steal. And that by breaking, the, the, that the connection between the morality and the economics is direct. You can't escape it. Moral, morality is not just something you brush aside for the sake of pragmatism and all these things that we hear. So what I'm doing today... Today I'm not going to read from a single news clipping or current events feature out of any of the popular media, but I'm instead going to rely on the wisdom of a handful of remarkable individuals who have written books or produced ideas that transcend our mainstream of confusion and ignorance, I think. And of course there's two issues overlapping here. One of them is the credit expansion and inflation, which is what we're really seeing. And the other one is the issue of bailouts, and which is a little bit more about picking winners and losers, as some people are calling it. And so you might find some people on one side of the fence on one of those issues, on the other side of the fence on the other issue, inconsistencies all over the place. So let's take a look at what some... Like, we've, been all here, we've been here before, you know, and you hear a lot of people say, well, we never learn from history. This will be the example of that. Because when I went through some of this stuff, I was amazed at what I discovered, because we've gone down this path before, and you won't believe what we did to get out of it here and there and some of the wrong things we did. So here's to start off with a haunting essay that was written back in 1974 by Ayn Rand, and it was called Egalitarianism and Inflation. It's a very long essay, three parts. I've just excerpted the parts that concentrate on uh, our crisis today, the money issue, um, inflation, money, credit. And here's what she had to say. She says, inflation is a man-made scourge made possible by the fact that most people do not understand it. It is a crime committed on so large a scale that its size is its protection. The integrating capacity of the victim's minds breaks down before the magnitude, and the seemingly complexity of the crime which permits it to be committed openly in public. For centuries, inflation has been wrecking one country after another, yet men learn nothing offer no resistance, and perish not like animals driven to slaughter, but worse, like animals stampeding in search of a butcher. That's how I feel some days when I watch those, those Senate hearings and committee hearings in the States. Rand describes money as the tool of men who have reached a high level of productivity and a long-range control of their lives. Money is not merely a tool of exchange. Much more importantly, it's a tool of saving, which permits delayed consumption and buys time for future production. By the way, that savings, she never really says it, that's capital. When you have that savings, it's not necessary for your day-to-day -day living expenses. To fulfill this requirement, money has to be some material commodity, which is. Now here's the qualities of what make money. Uh, that money has to have in order to be considered money. It doesn't make it money for sure, but these are the qualities, and it has to be imperishable. In other words, it can't rot on you. It can't, you know, it can't use apples for money. They'd be gone in a week. It has to be rare. It has to be homogenous. can't be mixed with grains and sands and other things. It has to be clean. It has to be easily stored. It cannot be subject to wide fluctuations of value on its own, and it has to always be in demand among the people who trade with it. Now, of course, the thing that, saw, that, that covered this, all of these qualities in the past, was gold, and still is to some degree today. And we'll talk more about gold a little later on. But describes Rand that agriculture is the first step towards civilization, because that's the first thing that required a significant advance in man's conceptual development. It required man to grasp two cardinal concepts, which the perceptual concrete-bound mentality of hunters would not grasp fully, and that is time 
and savings. Once you know these, you've grasped the three essentials of human survival, time, savings, and production. You have grasped the fact that production is not a matter confined to the immediate moment, but a continuous process, and that production is fueled by previous production. Anything above the level of a savage's precarious hand-to-mouth existence requires savings, because savings buy time. Now, it is at a time like this, writes Rand, and you'd think she was talking about today, but she was talking in the 70s when we were looking at near 22% you know, inflation rate, and that was the interest rate on a first mortgage. She says, in the face of an approaching economic collapse, that the intellectuals are preaching egalitarian notions. When the curtailment of government spending is imperative, they demand more welfare projects. When the need for, for men of productive ability is desperate, they demand more equality for the incompetence. When the country needs the accumulation of capital, they demand that we soak the rich. When the country needs more savings, they demand a redistribution of income. They demand more jobs, less profits. More jobs, fewer factories. More jobs, no fuel, no oil, no coal, no pollution, but above all, no more goods for free to consumers, no matter what happens to jobs, factories, or to produce, or more goods more free goods to consumers, no matter what happens to jobs, factories, and producers. Sound, sound familiar? Sounds like what's going on today. And then she says, perhaps it's harder for us to understand the mentality that has been ruling Western civilization for almost a century. Trained in college to believe that to look beyond the immediate moment, to look for causes or to foresee consequences is impossible, modern folks have developed the con context dropping as their normal method of cognition. They observe that a small town shopkeeper having economic difficulties only has one problem. Hey, it's a lack of customers. So they believe that the goods he sells are always here and always will be here and that the question of the goods he sells or where they came from has little to do with it. Therefore, they conclude the consumer, not the producer, is the motor of the economy. Let us extend credit, you know, i.e. our savings to the consumers they advise in order to, quote, expand the market for our goods. But in fact, consumers as consumers are not part of anyone's market. Nature does not grant anyone an innate title of consumer. That's something that has to be earned by production. Now here's an interesting principle, and you'll hear it repeated by a lot of the people I touch on today. Only producers constitute a market. Only those who trade products or services for products and services. In their role as producers, they represent a market's supply. In their role as consumers, they represent a market's demand. The law of supply and demand has an implicit subclause. It involves the same people on both sides of the equation, in both capacities. And when this subclause is forgotten, ignored, or evaded, you get the economic situation of today. So in other words, she's saying that everybody who's a consumer is a producer. You have to be, because where are you getting your money from? Unless you're getting it from someone else who is a producer. And then it comes a point of whether you're getting it from them voluntarily or involuntarily. But she concludes, is there any hope for the future of this country? She thinks, yes, there is. The country has one asset left, the productive ability of its people. And to the extent that this ability is liberated, we might still have a chance to avoid a collapse. We cannot expect to reach the ideal overnight, but we must, she says, reveal its name. We must reveal to this country the secret which all those posturing intellectuals of any political denomination who clamor for openness and truth are trying so hard to cover up that the name of that miraculous productive system is capitalism. 
And now we'll take a quick break, and when we come back on the other side of this break, you're going to be hearing in this, um, just coming up shortly, uh, from 1984, speaking at the University of Toronto, uh, Dr. Leonard Peikoff, uh, speaking on capitalism and morality for about four minutes or so on the other side of this, and then we'll come back and talk about cars and capitalism and the whole motor industry and how that was looked on uh, just after the industry exploded into existence in North America. We'll be back right after this. Even if I do manage to graduate, ha-ha, what do I do then? I mean, it's the private sector, but look how bad the job market is today, you know? Here's Valerie Desmond. Hey, guys. Oh, man. You think there's any way she would ever go out with me? Mm, no. Oh, thanks. See, it's this whole stupid capitalist system, you know? I mean, it's set up to heap rewards on the advantage and the aggressive. And just, like, to make sure that, like, two regular schmoes like you and me never get a date with girls like Valerie Desmond. I hate the whole bourgeois mentality of the school. Let me ask you something else, man. Do you actually read this? No, I read this. This is a book. It's Karl Marx. Famous book. Proletarian Chicks in Bondage. It's, uh, it's a condom house book. Comes uh -huh. with a leather hood. Oh, is that the one with the pictures you had? Yes, sir. Can I borrow that? Let's move on. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Our topic this evening is capitalism versus socialism, which is the moral system. To answer, we have to know what is morality. What is the ethical standard we're going to use to judge a political system? We cannot just assume that everyone knows or it's in the Bible. We've got to state and validate our moral views at the outset because that's what's going to decide this debate. Now, our side holds that the standard of morality is man's life, that which man requires in order to sustain his life. Whatever man requires by his nature in order to survive, we regard as the good or the moral. Man's crucial tool of survival is his reason, his mind. The mind is our only means of dealing with reality, grasping facts, acquiring reliable knowledge. The mind is the basic source of every pro-life value. Take as one example the immense, unprecedented wealth that you see all around you in the West, the wealth created since the Industrial Revolution and capitalism. This wealth was not produced by muscles, but essentially by thought, the thought of the scientists who discovered new knowledge, of the inventors who used the knowledge to create new products, of the businessmen who used their minds to conceive and organize large-scale productive enterprises. Physical labor by itself is not what creates wealth. Every earlier age had an abundance of physical labor. What creates wealth and all human values is thought. That's point one. Morality means thinking, reasoning, exercising, and living by one's mind. Point two. Life requires selfishness. A living organism has to be the beneficiary of its own actions. It has to pursue specific objects for itself, for its own sake and survival. Life requires the gaining of values, not their loss. Achievement, not renunciation. Self-preservation, which is selfish, not self-sacrifice. If life is the standard, then morality cannot consist of sacrifice. Sacrifice is incompatible with the requirements of human life. And I mean here any kind of sacrifice, whether of oneself to others 
or of others to oneself. Many people think our choice is only sacrifice yourself to others, which they call altruism, or sacrifice others to yourself, which they call selfishness. Cut your own throat for your neighbor's sake or cut their throats for your own sake. Either way, however, one thing remains the same. Somebody's throat gets cut, and the dispute is merely over who is to be the victim. If life is the standard, however, we should not be reduced to haggling over victims. We should oppose on principle the idea of throat cutting, in other words, of sacrifice. A selfish man, in the sense I advocate, does not sacrifice others to himself. Selfishness means each man is an end in himself, neither sacrificing himself to others nor others to himself. A man should live independently by his own mind and effort with no victims. Such a man uses his mind to the fullest and acts accordingly. In other words, I'm talking about rational self-interest. And in dealing with others, this means trading value for value by mutual consent to mutual advantage. It means each party respecting the sovereignty and the freedom of the others with no sacrifice either way. Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now until noon. I'm Bob Metz, and this is the best show in the world when it comes to capitalism and freedom. You won't find another one like this. At least that's what you folks are telling me in the mail. Um, and keep that mail coming, because it's going to be part of some future shows, too. Again, uh, just write chrw at gmail.com. And send those jokes, too, because I, I, I can use a good joke every now and then. I've talked about Isabel Patterson before. She, of course, was a compatriot of Ayn Rand's back in the, in the middle and early part of the last century. Uh, apparently, they worked together. She, uh, Isabel Patterson wrote an infamous book, a single book that just put her on the map. It was called The God of the Machine. If you can ever get a hold of it, I think it's very worth getting, actually. Uh, it was uh, copyright back in the mid-1940s and not printed by her estate until the 60s. I think there's a publisher now who's actually publishing it. And um, it, it's just phenomenal what's in this single book. In one of uh, the chapters in her book, she talks about um, cars and capitalism and the credits. And I think it's in her chapter on, on depressions and money. And... You know, she developed the development of the automobile and its attendant industries were very welcomed by Isabel Patterson, and not only welcomed but understood in a way that most people really never contemplate. And here's what she said about it. Remember, this is back in 1947. She says these developments, referring to the the automobile and all that stuff, have she says has a philosophical, social, and political meaning. The motor car is designed for individual ownership and use. The course of events reveals the true nature and process of capitalism, which is not collective and cannot be brought into any system of collectivism. Capitalism is the economic system of individualism. The energy age could get underway only by a preliminary concentration of liquid capital in private control, which collectivism will not permit to begin with, which, by the way, is exactly why all collectivist societies are poor. Thus it was assumed by superficial minds, such as Karl Marx, that capitalism tended to concentration of wealth and class division of interests. But the quote-unquote interest of capitalism is distribution. All the inventions of man have individualism as at their end because they spring from the individual function of intelligence, which is the creative and productive source. Freedom, being the natural condition of man, 
inventions making for greater mobility resolve into individual means of transport. Think about that when you see all the billions that our governments are wasting on public transport. When that's not that's not even the future. The future's going the other way, and they want to herd us into sardine cans so that we all sit together in the collective and go the same way. <laughs> oh man, it's such it's such uh, primitive thinking. That's all I can say. And then she says, so far as cooperative action is useful toward the development of the individual, capitalism is fully able to carry out by voluntary association vast and complex operations of which collectivism is utterly incapable and which are self-liquidating at the limit of their usefulness if they are allowed to complete the process. And that's a biggie. That applies to what's going on today. No collectivist society can even permit cooperation. It relies on compulsion and hence remains static. What I think is funny, all the socialists running around all the time, you've got to cooperate, cooperate, which is not what they're talking about. They're talking about compulsion. Now back to credit. Here's what she says about credit. This is Isabel Patterson. She says, A liability to panics and depressions is inherent in a high production system that uses credit, just as liability to famine is inherent in a low production system. Of the two, that of the high production is obviously the least damaging on the plain evidence of history. But the intervention of the political power greatly ag aggravates hardship in any case. The 19th century was the first century of high energy production. It was also the first century in Europe when men did not actually perish in large numbers from hunger. Isn't that amazing? The one famine that did occur in Europe was the Irish famine where a staple crop was blighted and there was little or no, or no industrial development because the political power did not permit enterprise to function freely. Elsewhere, industrial depressions caused severe hardship, even destitution, but it was possible to ward off sheer starvation at the very worst. And the extreme hardship was due to the partial survival of the status economy, which means a not free economy. In the United States, there were several very heavy and protracted depressions, hard times, they called them. Practically nothing was done by the political power under the pretext of relief. There was rock-bottom poverty, men tramping the country looking for work and living on handouts or soup kitchens. But the prices of commodities were so low, being allowed to go down as far as they would, that very little money sufficed for subsistence. You're starting to see that today now, too. Look at what's happening in the gas prices, actually getting back down to the 70s again. When the credit collapse had been liquidated, recovery was so rapid that the change seemed fabulous in retrospect. The frontier of freedom had not been closed. There's a peculiar contrast between the depression of the 1890s and that following 1929, perhaps a lesson for political thinkers, she warns. A hundred years ago, Macaulay, and this is a hundred years from when she wrote, so we're talking a hundred years before 1947, uh, Macaulay expressed apprehension that the American Constitution and property rights might sooner or later be subverted by popular suffrage because in times of distress, the have-nots would vote to expropriate the haves. Unless one goes behind the returns, it might be assumed that he was right. But what did happen, she asked. In the Depression of the 90s, an election turned on that issue. Wow, there's a similarity. In respect of money and the free silver question, that was the issue of their day had to save silver. <laughs> Certainly the majority of voters were in some distress. The vote was fairly close, although decidedly weighted against sound money by the Democratic Party solidarity of the South. So what's new, eh? Nothing's changed. But the popular decision was for sound money. Again in 1932, the popular vote was for government economy, sound money, and incidental reduction of the political power, though the country was suffering acutely from a depression. And what was the cause of the panic? Here we go. 
enormous government loans abroad which were not repaid, and the existence of the Federal Reserve System, a political creation which made an inordinate credit extension possible. And who went on federal relief first? Now get this. By no means the have-nots. The real cleavage did not occur on the lines Macaulay drew between the rich and the poor. It was between the producers and the non-producers in the main. The first measure of quote-unquote relief was the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, and the first money paid out from it went to J.P. Morgan and Company. It was the non-productive rich who first went on the dole. Had they not done so, no measure could have been passed for the federal poor relief, and the working man accepted it only in extremity and with bitterness. What he wanted was a job. Just like one of the last bailouts, eh? they, you couldn't get anything trickling down to anybody until everybody paid themselves off and gave themselves bonuses, which I read a lot of that on a previous show. And this, again, is uh, Isabel Patterson writing. Vincent Astor, drawing a large inherited income from ground rent, sold slum property which had been exploited till there was no income left in it to the federal government. Owning shipping, he got shipping subsidies. Speculators urged the extension of government power to maintain the inflated values of their paper securities by depreciation of money. Hello, that's exactly what's going on today. And by stopping bear sales, hello, <laughs> on the market so that huge blocks of stock at artificial prices hung over the market and made normal recovery impossible. To quote-unquote save them from the consequences of their own gambling, everyone who had not participated in the game was penalized. Laws were passed against hoarding, so that the only action punished was prudence. By this means, the normal reserves of cash, which normally restore production, were dissipated. There is your danger. Likewise, thrifty, competent, and solvent farmers who managed to get their living from their farms were penalized with quotas and quota taxes to subsidize speculative farming. Just yesterday I watched French fishermen dumping fish in back into the ocean because they exceeded their quota. Good food, just being dumped. Uh, here's a, one man in Montana drew $30,000 of government money. This is back in the 30s, eh? Because he persisted in wasting seed wheat on arid land during a drought, while a poor widow in New England was forced to pay a processing tax because she raised a couple of pigs and turned them into bacon for herself. The line was drawn in a striking manner between the producer and non-producer with Henry Ford and Senator Cousins. Ford was in production. He was against government intervention. Remember that now. Henry Ford was against government intervention. Cousins, on a one-time partner of Ford's, who had taken his fortune out of production and put it into tax-free government bonds, advocated the government expropriation of money. Ha, ha, ha. Every time the production system tried to function healthily, the non-producers invoked the political power to choke it off. And ultimately, the main current of energy was forced into the political realm. This process has already occurred in Europe. Enormous loans were made through political agencies to political agencies, and the money went into non-productive static forms, public buildings, municipal improvements, none of which yielded any return. Then after that there was no work, and political control forced the workers into armament factories. In both America and Europe, misdirected energy was projected upward, but Europe did not build skyscrapers. What went up was military airplanes. If a financial system is unsound, it can only be so by the possibility of overextension of credit and paper currency. A true remedy could co only consist of limiting such facilities. Government guarantees merely put the property of prudent men and the disposal of speculators uh, at the disposal of speculators in case of loss. There is no such thing as a money panic. A financial panic occurs from collapse of credit. 
And when a dictatorship gains powers, it will be by various groups conceding the power piecemeal, not perceiving what it must add up to in the end. Men enslave themselves, forging the change link by link, usually by demanding protection as a group. When businessmen act, ask for government credit, they surrender control of their business. When labor asks for enforced collective bargaining, it has yielded its own freedom. And then she concludes, she says, why money is, real money is indispensable. She says, you know, modern despots don't want to be poor themselves. They want to grab every luxury that an industrial economy can supply. What they want to do is keep the producers poor by taking the product and doling back a little for subsistence. And that's why governments seize and keep the gold. Because when you've got paper currency, you can depreciate it. And the difference has to come out of somewhere. And the main cut is always in wages. The fact is that heavy government expenditures must always be taken from the working man's wages because there is no other possible source. But the depreciation in currency comes out of wages immediately. Whatever anyone gets in his pay envelope will simply buy him that much less in goods. Conversely, increased production raises wages even though the sum of money is the same, it will buy more. So even if you get paid the same uh, this week and next week, if all of a sudden there was twice as many goods on the market and the prices dropped, it would be like your pay went up by double without it going up at all. And that, of course, is part of the argument that um, we get from Oshawa lawyer and Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever, who we're going to hear a clip from now just before this break we're going to take. And if you really want to understand money and banking in one or two easy lessons, I strongly recommend you watch Paul McKeever's videos on YouTube. They're amazing. Just go to www.youtube.com slash Paul McKeever, P-A-U-L-M-C-K-E-E-V-E-R. Get yourself a coffee or tea. Sit down for 40 or 45 minutes. Watch Paul take a drive to work in his car, which is how he does these YouTube videos, and listen to how he explains clearly. These things must be successful because his little cluster of YouTube videos have, have attracted over 300,000 viewings online, which is just blowing us away, and I think it attests to the value of the information. And uh, now here, you know, he's become kind of a, a, an expert and spokesman, though not official, on both the philosophy of Ayn Rand and on the nature of the money, and in particular, the fractional reserve banking system. And here he addresses some of the accusations that were accused against Ayn Rand and Alan Greenspan. So this is five minutes from a 40-minute clip. Um, and he just talks about the part we're talking about now, dealing with Alan Greenspan and whether Ayn Rand's philosophy really supported in any way what's going on today. And we'll be back after these breaks. Well, with all of the talk about Alan Greenspan, former head of the Federal Reserve, and with so many newspaper columnists and bloggers trying to associate um, his management of the Fed and the money supply, with uh, Ayn Rand's philosophy, the time has come to discuss Ayn Rand's view, or views, on the morality of money and of uh, inflation. In short, Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand's philosophy, although she didn't actually come out and talk about fractional reserve versus 100% reserve banking, it's not a detail she got into. Clearly, the philosophy is one that says, don't inflate the money supply because it constitutes a transfer of wealth. A transfer that nobody can see. That's particularly evil because no one even can see it occurring. No one's in control of it. Of it. No one can stop it except perhaps the government, which can make it illegal, but which hasn't made it illegal and is in fact participating in the process by having a Federal Reserve Bank that's issuing more Federal Reserve notes and more Federal Reserve notes at the time of her writing. Uh, uh, as claims on the same amount of gold. In my view, 
Ayn Rand's philosophy is consistent with the idea that a bank should borrow from a person the money it wants to lend out and should never simultaneously owe it both to the person who deposited it and to the person to whom it lends it. A person who deposits, say, a gold coin with the intention that it be loaned out for interest, if there's not to be inflation, must do that on the understanding that while that money is being loaned out by the bank to a worthy uh, borrower, the depositor will not be able to demand repayment of the gold coin. You can't have your cake and eat it too. If you're depositing it with the understanding that a bank is going to act as your middleman and lend it out to a productive enterprise that'll create enough uh, wealth to repay the loan and to pay interest on the on the loan, such that the depositor will receive some of the interest and such that the middleman banker will receive some of the interest. And the proper thing is for the depositor not to have any right to withdraw the money he has put on deposit for that lending, for the purpose of that lending, until that money has been repaid. And that can be done by specifying in advance a term over which uh, the money will be considered uh, not redeemable, not, not withdrawable by the depositor. We have these in place already. They're called term deposits, or GICs, Guaranteed Investment Certificates. And that is the way that banking in a moral system, a non-inflationary system, would uh, operate to extend credit to worthy borrowers for productive purposes, thereby increasing the wealth of society without stealing earned value from those who make it, from the productive. Fractional reserve banking, as I see it, is not consistent with Ayn Rand's philosophy. She didn't ever say it was. She complained about fractional reserve banking precisely because it was inflationary in the exact same sense that the issuance of credit that is not 100% backed by capital, meaning dollars, uh, in this case Federal Reserve notes, is inflationary. And the same arguments apply to private banks that extend credit on a fractional reserve as apply to the central banks, which were set up by those private banks initially, uh, and which inflated the supply of, of claim checks or Federal Reserve notes relative to the supply of gold. It was wrong for the Federal Reserve Bank to do it, and it's equally wrong for the same reasons for private banks to do it. The same ethical analysis applies, and the reason why it's unethical is that people who earn and put their savings into banks expect not to have uh, that value taken from them without their consent, and I'm talking the value of that, that earned uh, money, taken from them without their consent, um, because that would be theft. And when you extend credit in excess of the actual reserves you have, you devalue those savings. You devalue that money. You transfer value from that money into this new credit uh, that's uh, issued by the bank, and that transfer of wealth without consent is a theft, not a fraud. It's a theft, and uh, that's why it's immoral, and that's why Ayn Rand was complaining about it. That's why she supported gold as a money supply because it could not be easily expanded and therefore people could not easily have their earned value uh, taken away from them. 100% reserve the objectivist way. Take care.
1971, the United States accumulated deficits greater than the supply of gold the country held. In that year, Richard Nixon took the United States off the gold standard. In doing so, he disrupted the entire international monetary system. What is that clicking noise? Well, I hope that clicking noise is you taking notes, as I did when I was listening to some of this stuff. Um, we just heard from some of the things that Isabel Patterson was saying about economy and, and the nature of money and things. Well, one of the things to understand about Isabel Patterson's book, The God of the Machine, is that in her own words, quote, this book is a study of the flow of energy and the nature of government as mechanism, end quote. And that she always illustrated economics, politics, and philosophy by applying the principles of physics and, and the sciences and mechanics and of energy to those disciplines. Um, she was extremely well read because she was a book reviewer for the Chicago Tribune, I believe, and uh, read thousands of books, fiction, non-fiction, scientific, otherwise political, and so became very learned and had some very strong opinions. I will be doing uh, sort of a bio on her on sometime in the future, but something I'm getting into now. But I recall Ayn Rand in writing a book review of Patterson's God of the Machine expressing some frustration with Patterson for failing to elaborate and expand on this particular theme of her book, which she otherwise ran considered her book brilliant, of course. But she kept asking, was Patterson being literal or figurative when she repeatedly talked about energy and the energy circuit and economics? And personally, I believe it was both, both literal and figurative, although I guess the literal makes the figurative a bit redundant, I guess. But this might help explain my ambiguity. Here's a quote. Uh, quote, it is most important to recognize just what has happened when credit collapses, causing a, quote, depression. The energy circuit has broken down. This is Isabel Patterson talking. At numerous points along the line, energy is leaking, being lost in one way or another. When the wires from an electric power plant go down in a cyclone, a similar condition occurs, but from external accident. And the necessary measures for repair are obvious. But with a production system, the energy hookup is far more complex, and the breakdown is from internal causes, originating in misjudgment of the various factors and connections. Now, end quote there. Now, I only brought this up to help explain this next haunting quote that both recommends a solution to what should be done in a credit crisis and a dire warning of what so often happens when this solution is not followed. And here it is, quote, in a collapse of credit, enterprises which are sound enough in themselves are, are adversely affected. And, of course, that's the story we're hearing today, isn't it? Cash reserves are a precaution against such contingencies. They constitute storage batteries by which the business can keep on going until the long circuit is restored to sufficiently sound condition. But the only practicable test of where the leakage and loss occur is that repayment ceases somewhere. So if you're looking for a break in the line, she says, somewhere along the line, somebody's not paying their debts. And of course, we know that where that is in today's case. But here's what she says should be done. And this will shock a few, and there's only a handful of people suggesting this. She says, quote, the quickest and most drastic liquidation of a credit collapse would be the best and most equitable, because it would most rapidly reconnect the production system. But this is seldom allowed, she says. Instead, the political power is called in to seize or depreciate money, which is exactly what they're doing today. 
The meter is falsified, as she puts it, you know, your energy meter, and a general leakage all along the line is caused. So you just get more of the same problem that you had before. And now here's a really scary part where she concludes. She says, after that, once if the government takes that route, she says, no genuine recovery is possible unless or until this power of government is revoked and the general leakage stopped. Under the Roman Empire, after the government intervened, there never was a recovery. That was the end of the empire, and Europe was sunk for centuries. And that's kind of a depressing view on depression and what it can lead to and what happens when governments get involved. The whole history of the Roman Empire, by the way, from an economic point of view, is very little understood in how they taxed Rome in the past. You know, if I were to tell you that a lot of Rome was taxed with voluntary taxation, you'd, you'd look at me and go, what? Rome? Voluntary? No, they had, that's how it operated in the height of Rome. And they had no conscription, yet they had the biggest armies. How did they do that? We're going to talk about that on a future show, but today we're talking economy. going to take another break right now before I come back with some words of wisdom from other economists. But first, we're going to hear from two economists. The first being Milton Friedman, about two, three minutes from him, and then another two or three minutes after him from Dr. Walter Williams. Both uh, Milton Friedman, this is from his 19, late 70s, early 80s series, uh, Free to Choose, and he's in discussion here in a debate period after one of his presentations, talking about you know whether government should get involved, whether they can save the economy and all that stuff. And I think Dr. Walter Williams' uh, comment on uh, after Milton Friedman is rather self-explanatory, and we'll be back right after this break. Is there a mechanism that you can put right in the center of the spaceship that will operate regardless of who is the captain on the quarterdeck at any one moment in time. I don't think that's an economic question. I think that's a question that goes to religion. Ah, well, that's not on our agenda, actually. <laughs> 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 I boldly repeat the question, though. The expectation having been, uh, having been raised in the public mind, can you reverse this process where government is expected to produce the happy result? Oh, no way. And it would be very foolish of the public, which is on the whole more sensible than uh, academics, to, uh, to come to this conclusion. They look around them. What do they see? They see a whole collection of visible hands attached to Exxon, other large corporations. These are not small, independent competitors jostling with each other for uh, the patronage of the public. These are large organizations with substantial influence on their markets. Government's interference, clumsy as it often is, is an almost unavoidable response to the very visible manipulations of large organizations. If there's, uh, again, you're an academic, we're talking about fact and history. Now the history is that the growth of government has not been as a result of the things you're pointing out. It isn't the large corporations, it isn't the large unions, it isn't the technological development that has produced the major growth of government. The major growth of government in our time has come in the redistributive area. It's come in the area of designing programs which take from some people and give to others. We're not going to go into those here because we discuss those in our next two programs which deal with exactly the question of whether the government intervention that was stimulated by the Great Depression has been a success or a failure. But to your point, the grounds that you give for greater government intervention have almost nothing whatsoever to do with the actual factual growth of government. Now at the end of the war, immediately after World War II, it was thought 
that government was going to get involved, especially in Britain, in France, in central economic planning Partly on a large scale. Because of the scale. war experience too, when government Partly. was very much involved. The, Germany and Japan as well. Germany and Japan as well, and it's a war. Created a myth just as the as the uh, Great Depression or created. Or rather reinforced the myth of government uh, responsibility. Yes, but it created a different myth. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, this is a subject we don't discuss much in the film. We've discussed it in a book that we're bringing out with the same title to go along with the book. But, <laughs> but, the great, uh, but the great myth that was created by the war was a myth that government was efficient. And it was, for war. wartime purposes, mm -hmm. in, at least in, in Britain and the United mm -hmm. States. It wasn't so efficient in Germany and the losing countries. But why was that a myth? It was a myth because it is one thing for government to plan and to control an economy for a single overriding objective, a si one solitary objective, win the war. It's a very different thing for government to control the economy for the many numerous tastes of all of us of a very large number of people in a complex world. And I, you ask the question of whether people's opinions can be changed. Yes. I can't change their opinions, you can't change their opinions, but experience is changing their opinions. Is there anybody anywhere now who believes that government is an efficient way to run an industrial enterprise? In a free society, in a moral society, we want most, if not all, of our relationships to be voluntary. And we want to minimize involuntary exchange. Or maybe another way, a better way of looking at this, is that I tell people I love seduction, but I'm against rape. Voluntary exchange is the equivalent of seduction. And involuntary exchange is the equivalent of rape. I mean, what is the essence of seduction? The essence of seduction is that when we proposition our fellow man in the following fashion, we proposition him by saying, if you make me feel good, I'll make you feel good. That's the essence of seduction, any kind of seduction. An example of that, it happens all the time. I walk into my grocer with $2 in my hand and I proposition him. I say to him, if you give me, if you make me feel good, give me that gallon of milk, I'll make you feel good, give you $2. We call that, in statistics or game theory, we call that a positive sum game. That is, he is better off after seduction because he now has a $2, which he valued more than the milk. And I'm better off, I have the milk, which I valued more than $2. It's a win-win situation. Now, on the other hand, rape is when we proposition our fellow man in the following fashion. We say to him, if you don't make me feel good, I'm going to make you feel bad. <laughs> and that would be where I walked into the grocer with a gun in my hand. And I say to him, if you don't make me feel good by giving me that gallon of milk, I'm going to make you feel bad by blowing your brains out. <laughs> and ladies and gentlemen, we call that a zero-sum game. <laughs> that is, in order for one person to be better off, of necessity, it requires another person to be worse off. Welcome back. 
And, of course, that was Dr. Walter Williams uh, speaking some years ago in the United States at a dinner. Uh, you're hearing a lot today about, you know, the bailouts for the cars and all and all that kind of stuff. But mixed in with all that, of course, is a lot of anti or protectionist talk, anti-free trade stuff. We've got to protect our own. I even hear a lot of radio stations advertising, you know, make sure you shop south southwestern Ontario and make sure you help the economy, when in fact, that kind of thinking is not helping the economy. That's not how an economy works. I don't think you could find a single product, including a, a simple pencil, that you could say was made in Canada. But it's interesting, uh, there is economist, um, now this is from uh, Frederick Bastiat, the famous French economist, who uh, lived in the mid-1800s, writing in Economic Sophisms. And he, sa he asked the question, which is preferable for man in society, abundance or scarcity? And he says, what? People may expect may exclaim, how can there be any question about it? Has anyone ever suggested, or is it possible to maintain, that scarcity is the basis of man's well-being? Yes, this has been suggested. Yes, this has been maintained, and is maintained every day, and I do not hesitate to say that the theory of scarcity is by far the most popular of all, says Bastiat. Do we not hear it said every day that, quote, foreigners are going to flood us with their products. <laughs> and you hear that, you know, Americans are flooding us with their products. The Japanese are flooding us with their products. You know, thus people fear abundance. And he says, you know, if you want to decide between free trade and protectionism, you have to understand that the extent of the effects, you know, that abundance is the issue and, and scarcity is the issue of commodities, not of the rest of the stuff. You know, we're all talking about bailing out car industry as though our lives depended on it. Is there a shortage of cars out there somewhere? I don't see waiting lists for people, you know, like they do in the Soviet Union or someplace where they get on a waiting list to, to own a car for six or eight months. Then I would say, yeah, we've got a supply and demand problem. But that's not even relevant to today's legislators. What they're doing is making the classic errors. They're putting jobs first and production second, and I think that's one of the, you know, the, the, the craziest things they can do. Henry Hazlitt warns us in, a, in, a, in his book, Economics in One Lesson, by the way, another great book to get. He says, there's no more persistent and influential faith in the world today than the faith in government spending, as Milton Friedman just talked about. Everywhere government spending is presented as a solution for something. And he attacks the whole concept that we'll be hearing now about public works being necessary and the essential of functioning of governments and infrastructure. And he's not talking about public works that are necessary, you know, the bridges that need fixing and stuff, but the new ones that they invent. He says, um, he says, I'm not here concerned with with the with the necessary ones. I'm concerned with public works considered as a means of providing employment or adding wealth to the community that it otherwise would not have had when providing employment becomes the end, need becomes a subordinate consideration, which is exactly why the whole issue is so silly. One of the things we're seeing governments want to spend that I've talked about on the show already is $2 billion to host the Pan Am Games. That's what we really need that pulled out of our pockets right now, eh? Because that'll create jobs, although how many jobs worth? Well, $2 million, $2 million <laughs> worth. <laughs> now, of course, uh, we're running out of time. We don't have time to get to everything that some of these economists have said, but I do want to conclude or conclude, sorry, with uh, something Henry Haz Hazlitt says in his economics in one e easy lesson. He says, inflation and credit contraction and disasters are the inevitable result of 
interventionist policies and and you know inflation is the universal symbol of government intervention everywhere and he points out how government expenditures in the US were less than 3 billion in 1926 and they had a surplus and by fiscal year 1946 had risen to 55 billion and a deficit of 16 billion by 1978 451 billion and deficit 50 billion this is in the United States of course and all of this was accompanied by an, an enormous increase in the stock of money from 113 billion of demand deposits plus currency outside of banks in 1947 to 357 billion in August 78 in other words the active money supply had more than tripled during that same period and the effect of this increase in money has been dramatic has been a dramatic increase in prices and he talks about how the consumer price index just kept shooting up from then on and of course he takes a shot at the economic policy of the US and most countries for continuing to follow John Maynard Keynes general theory quote more than 20 years after the book has been thoroughly discredited by analysis and experience an appalling irony is that they're making these recommendations when the federal government has already been running a deficit for 41 out of the last 48 years more now and when that deficit's been reaching dimensions of billions in a year. One of the worst results of the retention of the Keynesian myths is that it not only promotes greater and greater inflation, but that it systematically diverts attention from the real causes of our unemployment, such as excessive union wage rates, minimum wage laws, excessive and prolonged unemployment insurance, and over-generous relief payments. But the inflation thought in part often deliberate, though in part often deliberate, is today mainly the consequence of other government economic interventions. It is the consequence, in brief, of the redistributive state. All of the policies of expro expropriating money from Peter in order to lavish it on Paul. <laughs> and that's basically the bottom line is we got to stop robbing Peter to pay Paul. That's not the job of governments. That's what I'll leave you with for this, uh, for this week, folks, and I hope you'll join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. right, act right, and think right. We'll see you then. Take care. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be up. All I know is if you're in the Canadian, you got to hope that Prince Charles never becomes king. Because I want to see his jug on the money. Wouldn't that suck? Imagine this puss on a quarter there, people are flipping it over. Which one's the moose? What the hell is this? It's a... This puss on a quarter there, people are flipping it over. Which one's the moose? What the hell is this? It's a... <laughs>